Thank you, ladies. Great song, great job. And uh, Jane, look forward to having you back on the piano. Eric obviously, obviously does a good job, and we're so glad your surgery went well this week. And uh, it's good to have you here today. It's been good to have Kristen's family here from Texas, too, for a while. We've enjoyed you being here and your faithfulness and, and your spirit. I see you smiling back there most of the time. And... Uh, that's good, and most of our regular people, they don't smile that much. I've got to be careful where I look. Second <laughs> Corinthians chapter 6. <laughs> I'm only half joking. There's some people, you can, uh, you, just, you can just tell them, you look at them, and they're paying attention, they're enjoying what's going on, and other people, you look at them and you're just not sure. As most of you know by now, we are on Sunday nights going through a series on Bible doctrine to understand what uh, we believe and teach here and why uh, we do that. Be believers, of course, begin by learning what the Bible teaches to be sound doctrine, and then believers who want to be wise, believers who want to be mature, they also learn why rather than just what. Sound doctrine produces spiritual stability, and my goal in this series is that the core of our people here at Bible Baptist Church would be people who know why in a world where very few people even know what. Last Sunday night, we talked about the priesthood of every genuine believer. We talked about what it meant uh, as Christians to be made by Christ priests unto God. As a New Testament priest, we can see and learn uh, things of God other people cannot see and learn as a priest of God, a New Testament priest, we can serve and work in ways other people cannot serve and work. As a New Testament priest, we have personal access to God in prayer in ways that other people do not have that access. And most of us, I think, in a biblical church are pretty familiar with those privileges we have as Christian people, but it is likely that a lot of people didn't understand that those privileges are linked with each of us being considered as believers, uh, priests of God. Now our subject for tonight is among the key Bible doctrines that are mostly ignored in American Christianity today. I hope you understand and you hear me uh, being critical quite often, not of individuals, but of the movement that contemporary American Christianity is not characterized by lies, nor is it characterized by insincerity. And if you think you're going to go those places and meet those people and find people uh, that are involved in lies and insincere, you, you're, you don't understand. Uh, it is characterized by lukewarm discipleship, and it is characterized by Bible doctrines that are ignored because they are difficult to apply and hard to hear. And I remind you all the time, God placed you and I in America in 2022 on purpose, uh, if we would have had more of an opportunity for our marriage and our home to be better 120 years ago when America was simpler and better, then He would have had us born then. You and I are equipped uniquely and specially for today. Uh, this subject is ignored for many reasons, but it is not ignored because of its lack of prominence in the Scripture. Uh, this doctrine is clear and prominent. It's ignored because this doctrine was 
overemphasized, abused, and regularly misapplied by the generation of Bible-believing Christians before us. It's clear and prominent in Scripture, but it is also ignored because uh, it is difficult to apply as Christian people. And quite frankly, as believers, many don't like it much because it's hard. But Lord willing, uh, I plan to speak the next three Sunday nights on this doctrine to apply it to different areas of our life and to uh, the Lord's church here. And unfortunately, as soon as I mention the name of this doctrine, there are going to be some people in here who will turn me off or even down. Uh, Even though this doctrine is spoken of often and clearly in both the Old Testament and New Testament, the doctrine about which I want to speak tonight is biblical separation. What is biblical separation? What is biblical separation not? How does biblical separation apply to me personally? How does biblical separation apply to us as a church in the midst of churches around us? How does biblical separation apply as we consider the relationship of believers in a church to the government? Those are all good questions. By the way, if you're here and me saying that I'm going to speak about separation tonight makes you a little nervous, understand, you never need to fear someone preaching and teaching the Bible. Uh, Failing to understand and apply this doctrine causes believers to live without the power and blessing of God in their life like it could and should be. But hear me when I say this also, Failing to understand and apply this doctrine has the greatest negative impact on our children. Especially the children of faithful believers. Failing to apply this doctrine hurts the next generation. And this is one of those doctrines that as we grow in the Lord, it should impact us more rather than less. If you're able to stand, if you would stand tonight, please, in honor of God's Word, tell my thought tonight is come out from among them and be separate. Come out from among them and be separate. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and verse 14. says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? What part hath he, hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you. Ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Thank you, you might be seated. This particular section of the Scripture is likely the most famous and most oft-repeated New Testament text when it comes to the biblical doctrine of separation. 
Few church leaders in America today even mention the doctrine of separation. Therefore, many Christians today have no idea what it even is. In fact, those who have heard of it likely heard about it in some place other than the church they now attend. Now, this is definitely not one of those Bible truths that those who are trying to mass-market Christianity to our culture talk about. See, them talking about this would be like McDonald's advertising vegetables to try to draw children to McDonald's. The fact of the matter is, is Happy Meals draw children to McDonald's more than vegetables, and many Christian leaders are silent on this clear and oft-repeated doctrine because it doesn't draw the kind of crowd that they want to draw. By the way, there's very, it is very different to have a crowd and to have a crowd of people who want to follow Jesus Christ. Uh, though many have never heard of this doctrine, a few believers seem to act as if biblical separation is all the Bible speaks about. Misunderstanding and misapplication of this doctrine has produced things years ago uh, that are, many here would think crazy. I mean, Landmark Baptist Church in our city, at one time, you are not allowed on their property as a woman if you were not wearing a skirt. You are not allowed on their property. I have heard of churches who literally stand at the back door and they will not allow women to come in their assembly or wearing pants. And a lot of those same assemblies have men there in jeans and a t-shirt. And a response to that kind of silliness, in the name of separation, a people pretend the doctrine doesn't exist. Listen, any thoughtful person realizes that neither Moses, Jesus, Paul, or any of the godly women in the Bible dressed exactly like American people in 1950 or 1850 or 1750. By the way, that's the truth. And what I want as your pastor and the elder and bishop here, I want us as Christian people to understand what the Bible does say as well as what it does not say. That is very important. When it comes to these kinds of issues, like Bible separation, God revealed these kinds of issues to us in what we would call principles. God gives us these things in principles because they must be applied from, their, from our heart by every generation in every age. God did not say, uh, like He would have said in the first century, uh, men, make sure that you have something to be able to gird up your loins so that you can pull your robe up and pull it underneath your girdle. God didn't write that. He did it on purpose because He wanted in every age men to dress like men and women to dress like women. And when it comes to the issue of separation, He didn't draw all these specifics that would have applied in 30 A.D. in the Middle East, but not apply in 2022 in America. He gave us Bible principles. And there have always been and will always be a remnant of believing people who want to please God in every area of their life. And there is a way in which you and I, as sincere Christian people, should be applying the doctrine of biblical separation today. Notice in our text, in verse 17, it very clearly says, Come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. That's a command. 
In fact, it's a very clear command and a clear principle. We are supposed to separate, be separate from them. Well, who are them? And what does it mean to be separate? Notice the them in the context in verse 14. says, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And so the them in this context is clearly unbelievers. And in context, this meaning of separate is to not be yoked together. A yoke was some instrument that linked two animals together in a manner to harness their strength for labor. Most people here have seen an antique yoke that linked two donkeys or two oxen or two horses together to pull some sort of farm implement. And so when we think about this, it is obvious that a believer should not marry an unbeliever. Marriage is clearly a yoke. It is something that links two people together. A believer is obviously not supposed to be in direct business partner with an unbeliever. Because owning a business together is a yoke. See, this is a clear Bible principle or a clear Bible doctrine. uh, And the application of this is very simple. The clearer and stronger the link is with someone, the yoke is with someone, the more clearly we should not be in that yoke with an unbelieving person. That's very clear from this text. What a lot of people don't realize is that God makes some special promises and promises special closeness in His relationship with any believer who chooses to obey and follow this doctrine. Verses 17 and 18. Come out from among them, be you separate, uh, saith the Lord, touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. will be a father unto you. You shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now, I'm not exactly sure what that means because every born-again person is a child of God and God is their Father, but I do understand this. Some people don't have a close emotional or warm relationship with their biological parent even though they have an unbreakable parent-child relationship. And the same is true with our Heavenly Father. See, God tells us there is a special closeness available to Him when His children, believers, properly separate separate from unbelievers and leave unclean things alone. In fact, God also, He makes clear how we should respond in light of these promises in chapter 7 and verse 1. It says, having therefore these promises. By the way, you see the therefore? Remember, therefore is a linking word. You always ask what it's there for. So he's linking what he's saying in chapter 7 and verse 1 with what he just said at the end of chapter 6. The chapter and verse markers are very helpful for finding things. But at times, they divide thoughts that God has linked together. And this thought that begins chapter 7 is linked with the thought that closed chapter 6. Having therefore these promises... The promises that God would be in a special close relationship, a father to you and your sons and daughters. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, notice he says, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We, in light of the close relationship that God offers to those who separate from unbelievers and touch not the unclean thing, 
he explains what he means like by that further when he says, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh. That is anything having to do with our flesh, not in the physical sense of our body, the flesh in the sense the Bible uses the word with the negative aspects of our nature. Uh, Listen, he says, cleanse yourself from that. From anything that has to do with uh, your lusts and following those kinds of things. He says, cleanse yourself from the filthiness of the flesh and of the Spirit. See, God cares about our outside. He cares about uh, our, our flesh. But He also begins inside. He cares about our spirit. Uh, spirit in this context is our attitude. God wants us to cleanse what's inside us and outside us so that we would better reflect Him and separate from this world. Now, God doesn't owe us any kind of explanation for why we should obey this command to be separate. But He gives five reasons why a believer and an unbeliever should not be yoked together, but instead be separate. By the way, all human beings have many things in common. We're all made in the image of the same God. We all have the same fallen nature. The Bible says we are all people of like passions. But the Bible also teaches that those of us who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ need to separate from unbelievers because there are some things that we will never be able to agree on. He lists five of them beginning in verse 14 when he says, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness. Fellowship is companionship and camaraderie. And listen, righteousness and unrighteousness, they're not together. They're complete opposites. They have no fellowship. And God defines what's right. Popular vote doesn't define what's right. The view of Christianity doesn't define what's right. God defines what's right. And you and I as believing people should be living a righteous life in an unrighteous world. And that will separate us from them. Notice the second thing that he lists. He said, "In what communion hath light with darkness? And again, light and darkness have nothing in common. I'm told that light is defined as the absence of of darkness. That's why just one little match can overcome an entire cavern of darkness. And light and darkness have nothing in common like a believer and an unbeliever. And you and I are supposed to have no communion, uh, sharing, close communication with someone who's an unbeliever. We are supposed to be light in a dark world rather than being like the darkness around us. Keep your hand there. Go back just one page. We kind of forget who's in charge of our world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, well, verse 3, it says, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, and whom the God, notice small g of this world, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, whose image of God should shine unto them. Notice who is in charge of this girl, this world. Who is the God of this world? Small g, Satan is the God of this world. This world operates on his morality. This world operates on his view of life and priorities. His, this world operates on his view of wealth and possessions and power and morals. This world, uh, uh, it does not value life because Satan doesn't value life. And we're cho- when we choose Christ and choose to believe, we're not supposed to duplicate the darkness of this world in our life. We're supposed to separate from it. 
And we'll talk about this more later, but we're going to see as we think about the world uh, that it's a big deal with God if we get too close to the world. Notice the third thing he has to say if you go back to chapter 6 and verse 15. He says, what concord hath Christ with Belial? And Belial in this context is Satan. And concord means harmony or agreement. And there's no harmony or agreement between our God and the devil. No harmony or agreement between Christ and Lucifer. Satan's literally the opposite in every way. And when you and I are in harmony with God, we don't play with the evil of this world. I have never understood, and you've heard me say this multiple times, how Christian people watch those evil horror films. I don't understand how Christian people mess with tarot tarot cards and seances and palm reading and yoga and all those kinds of things that are filled with evil historical connotations and still used by evil people today. God says you have nothing in common with that as a believer. He goes on further then to list in verse 15, what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? An infidel is a special category of an unbeliever. An infidel is an unbeliever who actively opposes God. Most unbelievers are not infidels. They're just unbelievers. But there are some unbelievers who are infidels. They actively fight against God the Creator, against the values that our Creator has established. And we are to have no part, no portion, no lot with them. Our affections are supposed to be set on things above. If you're a believer, our portion is not in this life. Uh, We are looking to the next life. It's not like we don't live in this world and have some things in this world, but we're not looking for our wealth and lot to be in this life. It's not our part. And he closes these five attachments of what he means in verse 16 when he says, "...in what agreement hath the temple of God with idols?" For you're the temple of God. Did you know that? If you're here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your body is the temple of God. You know, among the reasons you shouldn't tat it up, one among the reasons you should throw away your cigarettes, among the reasons why you should throw away your fork at the buffet, is your body is the temple of God, and God's Spirit lives inside of you, and you and I have some sort of responsibility to take care of this temple. And there's no agreement within the temple of God and and, and idols. None. Our God, the God of the Bible, Jehovah Elohim, He is not the same God as the God of Islam. Allah and Jehovah are not the same God. Uh, uh, Jehovah is not the same God as any of the gods of the Hindus. Jehovah is not the same God as any of the gods or what they would call gods of the Buddhists. Listen, our God is a unique God. He is the Creator God. He is the one and only God. And we have nothing in common when it comes to worship with those from other gods. Nothing. No agreement. Now, depending on where you are in your Christian life, obeying this principle, this doctrine of separation, it's going to look a little different. 
I don't think Christ expects this to look the same when you're somebody who is younger and just been saved a year or two as it should look from those of us who have been saved for decades. I, I, I think there's a big problem in your life if you uh, are less separate from the world today than you were five years ago. That, that's not growth. See, growth is we come to recognize just how much our life belongs to Christ and how much different Christ is from the world around us. We come to recognize just how awful so much of this world is and we become more and more disgusted with it and we want to separate from it. We're not looking to get close. But no matter where you are in your Christian life, no one has the right to ignore this doctrine. Come out from among them and be as separate, saith the Lord, to touch not the unclean thing, to not be yoked together with unbelievers. And the more a relationship becomes a yoke, the more it officially links you together, the more God said, don't be part of that relationship. And those who ignore this doctrine miss the blessings of God you could have had. And hear me when I say you greatly hurt the next generation of Christian people, especially your children. By the way, you hurt them by ignoring this doctrine, and you will hurt them by overemphasizing this doctrine. And like every great spiritual truth, it can be improperly overdone or underdone. What I'd like to do tonight, now that I've taught a little bit, is make some observations and applications on the doctrine of separation. Please, first go back in your Bible to Romans 12. Romans 12. By the way, I'm really interested in the Bible. And I believe you are too, or you wouldn't be here tonight. Uh, if you were looking for a church that just entertained you, you could find a lot of places that dim the lights and turn the platform lights up and... and uh, try to turn some uh, smoke makers up around there and, and get your flesh all uh, goosebumped. We're, we're not like that here. We just preach and teach the Bible, and we trust the Spirit of God to work in the heart and life of anybody who listens. Here's observation number one. Separation of believers from unbelievers is a recurring theme in both the Old Testament and New Testament. In fact, we won't spend time looking at it, but you can make the case that it was a prominent doctrine in the Old Testament. Now, though the specifics that God gave the Israelites are not applicable to us today as New Testament Christians living under grace, uh, the principles behind them oftentimes do. God is not holding you and I to the letter of the law, but He does expect us with grace and under the liberty of Christ to keep the spirit of the things He said. And that's actually a higher standard. God gave the nation of Israel a unique diet that separated them and made them distinct from other nations and peoples. God directed the people of Israel not to mix the type of fabric in their clothing, not to mix the type of seeds sown in the field. Uh, God gave them their own land, and they were not to try to take the land of nations around them. You'll never find them attacking the nation around, nations around them to get more land. Now, they defended themselves against them and made them pay tribute, but they never took their land. Why? God gave them their land. That made them distinct. 
Uh, I could go on for quite a while of ways God made them distinct. They were only supposed to marry Israelites within their own tribe. There was ceremonial defilements and they required them to remain outside the camp. I mean, think about this. If you were ceremonially defiled, you weren't allowed to go home. You had to stay outside the Israelite camp until whatever time was allotted for you to become clean again. That separated them as a distinct people of God. Um, In fact, when Israel rebelled against God, do you remember what Moses did? He took the tabernacle out of the center of their camp, and he put it outside the camp. God wanted a distinct people. I understand that there are some other reasons for their diet, clothing, farms, lands, and that. I'm just simply saying, any Israelite who is an obedient follower of Jehovah was separate and distinct from the people of his day. And so, well, Brother Wally, that's fine and dandy, but I'm not an Old Testament Jew. You see, this is also, whether people like it or not, a key theme in the New Testament. Have you ever thought about the solemn warnings God gives Christians about the world? Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Here it is, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Did you see that relationship with Christians in our world? He says in verse 2, be not conformed to it. When you put water in a vase, it takes the shape of the vase. Water conforms to whatever size vessel you put it in. You and I are not to be conformed to this world. We are not to let this world shape us. That's strong. Turn to James chapter 4. By the way, I say this and I remind everyone that you and I live in a day and age when the bulk of American Christianity purposely imitates the world. Purposely imitates the world. They purposely imitate the world's music. They purposely imitate the look of the world when you come in their place. Purposely. Notice what he says in James chapter 4, verse 3 says, You ask and receive not, because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Those are strong words. An adulterer is an adulteress. There is not the physical act. He's talking about the spiritual relationship of what it means when you as a child of God have this friendship with the world. Enmity is a strong kind of hatred. And friendship with this world is the enemy of God. Listen, you could not get farther from the Bible than to have your ministry philosophy be imitate the culture. You could not get farther from the Bible. Turn up in your Bible to 1 John chapter 2. 
Say, Brother Wally, I don't like it when you talk like that. I, I like dimming the lights, and I like to see the house rocked. Well, hear, hear, hear me when I say this. Uh, worship is never about what you and I like. Worship is supposed to be about God. The entire culture, by and large, has it backwards. And they say, well, I like this kind of worship music. And I like that kind of worship music. And some church says, well, if you like this kind of worship music, you come then. And if you like that kind of worship music, you come then. Listen, worship music has nothing to do with what you and I like. Worship is about God. It's all about finding out what God prefers and offering that to God, whether we like it or not. That's what worship is. But notice as we think about the world, uh, what he's going to say to us here about it, and in fact, he's going to define for us what he means by the world in 1 John chapter 2 and verse, <clears throat> excuse me a second, you know, I really needed some Mountain Dew, but if I drink one at this time of day, I'll be up to one o'clock like this, and I can't have that. 1 John chapter 2 verse 15 says, love not the world neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, now here's he's going to describe the three qualities of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth for ever. We're not supposed to be conformed to the world. We're not supposed to be a friend of the world. We're not supposed to love this world. Say why? Uh, how about the fact that Satan is the God of this world? Small g. And the world is the flesh and the lust of the flesh. And I think we all understand without me spending any time on it, how our world is driven by the lust of the flesh. The world is the lust of the eyes, this desire to have anything we see. The world is driven by the pride of life, the fact that uh, my life is my own, the fact that um, I'm going to live like I might not die until 40 years from now, the pride of life. That, that's what the world is, that God says don't com be conformed to it, don't be a friend to it, don't, don't love it. These are clear Bible principles. These are the reasons you hear me speak against Christian rock and Christian dance clubs and Christian tattoos. Listen, you cannot put the word Christian in front of those things. And it's because of these clear Bible principles you hear me often talk about the fact that Bible Baptist Church is supposed to be different from our culture. When someone walks in here, we should look different sound different, and treat them differently than the world does. When someone walks in here, people should find us treating one another differently than they see the world treat other people. Someone wisely said this, you must be different from this world to make a difference in this world. And there has never been anyone more different from this world than the Lord Jesus Himself. Let me ask you tonight, are you living a life as a Christian that could be considered separate and distinct from the world? I know this doctrine has been taken to the extreme by some, but it's also wrong to ignore it. What about you? Which gets us to our second thing tonight. Please go back in your Bible just a bit to Hebrews chapter 7. I said first, separation of 
believers from unbelievers is a recurring theme in both Old and New Testament. Here's the second thing tonight. Jesus perfectly lived a life God-defined as separate from sinners. Jesus perfectly lived a life God-defined as separate from sinners. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 says, But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, notice the description of him, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. You see, in addition to being holy, harmless, undefiled, and higher than the heavens, Jesus lived separate from sinners. Hear me, he was separate from sinners. He didn't live in a cave in the wilderness. He was separate from sinners. He didn't buy a cabin up in the mountains. In fact, he ate with unbelievers in their own homes at times. He didn't talk like they talked. He was separate. He, he spoke with unbelievers, both as groups and as individuals. We didn't treat people like they did. He was separate from sinners. He was kind and friendly to unbelievers. Boy, boy, one of the things that really grates my last raw nerve is somebody who, because they're doctrinally correct, who feels like they don't have to be warm and kind and loving. As if those were not Bible doctrines. He was kind and friendly to unbelievers, yet he did not embrace or imitate their value system. He was separate. He loved unbelievers. In fact, he ultimately, he suffered and he died for them. But he didn't love everything they did. He didn't do the things they did. He was separate from them. See, I get it. But I think we all know that every place we go and every person we spend time with has a potential to influence us badly, but separate from sinners is not living in a wilderness or a church bubble that leaves us nothing to do with any unbelievers. Listen, people are in the ditches on both sides of this issue. I know Christian people that literally have literally nothing to do with any unbelievers. They couldn't invite an unbeliever to a, bring a friend someday because they don't have anybody there in their life who's an unbeliever. That's not like Jesus. And then there's other people, they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're just so much just like the world around them, nobody could even have any idea. Why, why would I go to church with you? You're just like me. Listen, there's a healthy distance we must stay from unbelievers in the world. And there's a healthy interaction with the world we're supposed to have. Do you live a life that's separate from sinners? It, it, does it all resemble the life of the Lord Jesus? Say, Brother Wally, if, if I talk to unbelievers, some, I, I would be risking following Jesus. Uh, listen, if your faith and the truth that causes you to do what you do is so weak that you, every little thing you do is going to pull you off course, you got big problems. Which gets to us to our third thing and last thing. Romans chapter 1. So good, I'm real sick of this sermon. If you want to hear me be nice, just listen to this morning's sermon. 
Uh, by the way, I, I don't define nice as hiding the truth. There's a lot of truth I don't like to hear. Hey, you know, if you think I like everything I preach from here, you, you don't understand what it's like being a preacher. I'm not here preaching me. I'm here preaching the Bible. And, and some of this stuff, it causes me to bend too. It's the Word of God. Which gets us to our last thing. I said separation of believers from unbelievers is a recurring theme in both Old and New Testament. Uh, Jesus perfectly lived a life God defined as separate from sinners. And lastly, biblical separation is not just from the world and unbelievers. It is also to something. Separation to God. Romans chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Notice Paul was not just separate from the world. He spoke so clearly against. He was separated unto the gospel of God. He was separated from something, and he was separated to something. You see, believers sometimes recognize the doctrine of separation exists, but they sometimes fail because they only consider it in one direction. You see, people who separate from the world, but not unto God, you know what happens? They become weird. You see, separation is not biblical separation until we separate from the world and unto God and the gospel. You see, the doctrine of separation is not just what we do not do. It's not just where we do not go. It's not just what we do not say, though it includes things we do not do. It includes places we do not go. It includes things we will not watch. It includes that, but it's not just that. It is also separated unto God. There's lots of people who live separated lives, but not separated unto God in the gospel. Now, I know you might think I'm weird for, for this, but I like, you know, and I was talking about a Sunday school class about that this morning. I like television shows that are, are, are like, a segment of culture. I mean, I, I'll watch for a little while what it's like to be a crab fisherman. I'll watch what it's a little while to be a, for a while to be a, a gator hunter. I, I'll watch for a little while what it's like to be a, a little person. I, I, I'll watch for. I, I, I just I'm interested in what makes people tick. And for a while, I watched this show called Alaskan Bush People. And if you've ever seen the show, you, you would have to agree. That when I say, you know, them some of the weirdest kids you ever bump into. I, I mean, they, they, they literally can, can write the book on how to be weird. And if you're not familiar with the show, uh, this family, the Brown family, uh, they, they don't live there now, but for a long, long time they lived in Alaska, kind of on their own property, separated from everybody and everything. But they were not separated unto God. They were just separated from the world. And that is not biblical separation. That's how to make a weirdo 101. See, it is not enough for you and your family to leave the world behind. We're to reach our world for Christ and be separated unto God. Biblical separation is not a clown suit at a business casual luncheon. Biblical separation is not you and your family going so far from civilization or people 
to protect you and your children from every outside influence. Biblical separation is separation from the world, separated unto God. Are you separated unto God and the things of God? Or are you just living separate? Listen, I, I could talk for 30 more minutes about things we did and didn't do when we were raising our kids or things Sharon and I do and, and do not do because we believe in the biblical doctrine of separation. But I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to tell you this doctrine exists. And wherever it is you are in your Christian walk, you need to apply this. And if your separation from the world today is less than it used to be, you're headed in a bad direction. You'd quietly stand.